Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Another just very quick strategy is that often people will say things like, you know, I am sad. Uh, I am being undermined in this meeting, so I'm going to shut down. I am stressed. And when you say I am, what it makes it sound is as if you are the emotion. You know, I am sad. All of me, 100% of me is sad. And you can see that in this context, then there's no space between you and the emotion because you've made all of you the emotion. So a very practical way that uh, I teach my clients and I use in organizations is just name the thought emotion feeling for what it is. It's a thought and it's an emotion or it's a feeling. It's not a directive to action. You know, who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? So instead of saying, I am sad, I'm noticing the feeling that I'm sad. Instead of, I am stressed, I'm noticing the feeling that I'm stressed. It's so subtle, but what you're doing by prefixing, I am noticing the feeling, I'm noticing the thought, you're naming them for what they are, is you creating critical space between you and that emotional experience. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Susan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hi, thanks for having me here. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I came across your work by both uh, your way of your TED Talk as well as your book, Emotional Agility, all of which we will get into. But I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Well, where in the world I grew up? I grew up in uh, South Africa. So I grew up as a white person living in the white communities of apartheid South Africa. And that experience absolutely impacted on my career and my life in general. So from a very early age, I recognized that I was essentially growing up in a country that legislated discrimination and hate. And also that legislated denial, you know, the denial of the reality of people's experience and their pain. And then when I was around 15 years old, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And what I had been experiencing out in the world very much uh, came into stark relief with the experience of dealing with a um, loss that was profound, you know, the loss of a parent. And what I really noticed is that so often in our society, in our community, there is a denial of often the most essential part of us. Uh, a friend of mine who was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer said to me, you know, everyone keeps telling me to be positive, to be positive. And she said, what that does is it stops me from being authentic in my experience, in being able to have real conversations, and it really uh, cuts off, it severs uh, the ability to traverse what is painful in a way that feels authentic. And so, so much of my work has focused on a single question, which is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in an increasingly complex and fraught world. And that we have these narratives in society, you know, just be positive, good vibes only, it'll be okay. And I'm really curious about how those ideas might actually um, either facilitate or undermine our resilience and our well-being. Mm. So that's the core focus of my work and really influenced in many ways by my background as well as my childhood. Yeah. So you grew up in apartheid South Africa, and you're the second person uh, that I've interviewed. Trini Pillay also is a, a dear friend who did, grew up there as well. And it's interesting because he grew up there as a minority. You grew up there as a white person. I wonder when you look at America today, uh, I feel like I've heard Trevor Noah talk about this as well as somebody who grew up in, in apartheid South Africa. Do you feel like you're watching history repeat itself? And do you have anything that really concerns you about sort of the racial divide we've been seeing over the last several years? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I speak about in my TED Talk is this idea that, uh, you know, fundamentally, when you live in a society in which rules or systemically the narrative in society discriminates or uh, delegitimizes some people versus others, uh, there's often this experience that 
uh, really this is about denial. It's denial of humanity. It's denial of our common humanity. It's denial of the ability to access compassion. And, you know, what's really fascinating about that experience is that that kind of denial is unsustainable. It's unsustainable for us as individuals, for our communities, for our world. Um, and as we watch the ice caps melt uh, for, you know, the, the planet. And I think that there is a, um, there's this, there's this kind of really interesting and sad phenomenon for us as human beings where even when you are supposedly the kind of group in power, that, that when you dehumanize the other, you simultaneously dehumanize yourself. Because if you can't extend equity and if you can't extend compassion, then what happens simultaneously is that you dehumanize and you take away your legitimate need for compassion and humanity. And really what I, what I do see, what I do feel is, um, yes, history repeating and also just a sense of enormous sadness at the pain that I think is uh, so real for so many people. So you lost a, a parent at a, a really, really early age. Uh, I can't even fathom going through something like that. Just the thought of losing my parents makes me really, really sad. And I, I spend a lot of time with them now, more than I ever have before. I go and see them every weekend because they're an hour away. And then I think with age, I've become much more aware of the fact that, wait a minute, this isn't going to be an option uh, forever. And I should really, really embrace it. What I wonder is how your... Uh, making meaning of that experience has changed with age when you looked at it when you were 15 versus now? When I was 15, when my dad died, uh, and I remember very clearly my mother coming and basically telling me to go and say goodbye to my father. Um, and I walked into his room and I remember that experience of knowing that it was the last time that I would see him. And you know, we live in a society that really values this idea that I'm okay, you know, that that you'll be okay, just be positive. In organizations, we see how it's just gritting on with things, just getting on with everything, almost regardless of what our experience is. And I certainly, as a 15-year-old, had that. Uh, people would ask me how I was doing, and I would say, I'm okay. And you know, I continued trying to put on a very brave face to the world. And I think what has happened both as a function of age and experience and a function of my work is that way of being is unsustainable. In organizations, we very often push emotion aside. We'll say things to people like, you're either on the bus or off the bus. You're either with us or against us. You're either going to support the change or you're not going to support the change. And often what we try to do is we try to push aside difficult emotions. And yet the only way through difficult emotions is through them. It's not about pushing them aside and it's not about uh, pretending. It's actually about being able to um, integrate what has happened in your life with who you are now as opposed to have a separate story. And I think for me, what's happened over time is I have been able to really get up close with the pain of loss. But I think also what's come with that is a very, very strong sense of resilience in myself and a feeling that in some way, and I remember my mother when my dad was dying, my mother saying to me, one day you'll look back at this experience and you will realize in some way that you are lucky. And I remember being so angry with her. You know, how dare you tell me that I'm lucky that my father is dying? And she said to me, I don't mean it in that way. But when you've gone through a difficult experience, often what it does is it allows you to extend your empathy. It allows you to understand what others are going through. Uh, it allows you to strengthen parts of yourself. And I recognize years later that she was true. She was right. Um, so how's it changed? I think it changed in my experience. So, so I, I, you know, the time passing definitely changed the experience. 
But I think that there's also the recognition that we as a society do not deal well with grief, stress, anxiety. We tend to try to push these emotions aside. And often in pushing them aside, we actually make ourselves weaker. There's enormous strength in being able to show up to our difficult emotional experiences and to try to understand them and try, try to understand the value that sits beneath them. Uh, not in a whitewashing way, but in a way that is uh, true and, and authentic. Yeah. Do you think that emotional resilience is only something that can be cultivated by having gone through a difficult experience? Because it, it seems to me that if you don't have something that forces resilience on you, it would be hard to develop. Well, there are many people who go through difficult experiences and not everyone comes out of those difficult experiences more resilient. So we definitely can look at the psychological research and start saying, you know, what are the things that allow people to leave experiences more resilient versus less resilient? And then we can say, you know, what if you've never gone through a difficult experience before? Uh, is it possible for you to be resilient? And again, we found the same commonality of factors, the same um, essence in terms of how people are with themselves and with their emotions. Uh, those, those core components become predictors of resilience. So in short answer to the question, I think that uh, difficult experiences definitely test our resilience. Uh, but I also believe when we look at the psychological research that there are ways of being that prepare us for difficult experiences and ways of being that allow us to get through difficult experiences that actually land up being the foundational aspects of resilience and, you know, those we can explore. But uh, I, I don't think that going through a difficult experience is a necessity mm. for resilience. Okay. We'll, we'll talk about the foundational aspects of, of what leads to resilience, but uh, I want to go into to something that you talked about in the book, and I, I'm really pleased that you brought up this whole sort of be happy and, and self-help narrative. I mean, you know, I, I've, I write some of this stuff. I produce a lot of these con you know, conversations on The Unmistakable Creative where people talk about this, uh, about positivity. We've had everybody from happiness researchers to performance psychologists. And uh, there are a couple of lines in the book that really stood out to me. You said, striving to be perfectly happy will only set you up for frustration and failure. And then you also said, a growing body of research shows that emo emotional rigidity, getting hooked by thoughts and uh, behaviors that don't serve us is associated with a range of psychological ills, including depression and anxiety. Meanwhile, emotional agility, being flexible with your thoughts and feelings so that you can respond optimally to everyday situations is the key to well-being and success. And I guess what I wonder is how do you not get hooked by thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that don't serve you uh, when you're going through something difficult, because I think that that's what happens to so many of us. We go into this rumination uh, of, of things. Yeah. So uh, firstly, we do absolutely live in a society that tells us to be happy, you know, that being happy is our right. And what the research is showing is that when people become overly focused on being happy, you know, where you start seeing this idea of just be positive, um, this is going to be the best Thanksgiving ever, or it's going to be, you know, the happiest experience that I've ever had. And we start chasing goals around happiness. What's super interesting is you find that those people become more and more unhappy over time. So there's almost this idea that expectations around happiness uh, stop us from actually cultivating true levels of authentic happiness. So I think that's uh, the, the first way in which we can become rigid. But of course, there are other ways, and you allude to this in, your, in the quotation that you described from the book, which is that very often when we're going through difficult experiences, and it could be a difficult experience that is like, you know, a death or it could be a job loss, or it could be a difficult experience that's even in a day-to-day -day life, you know, I'm stressed or uh, I'm really struggling to get this business up and going. And so often what we do is we have thoughts, a thought might be um, I'm not good enough or I'm a fraud or it might be an emotion, something like I'm stressed, I'm anxious, I'm sad or it might even be a story, a story, sometimes our stories were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three about who we are, whether we're good enough, what kind of relationships we deserve, whether we're creative, whether we're not creative, good at math, not good at math. And so often what we do is we have these thoughts, emotions, stories, 
And there's actually nothing wrong with having them. You know, if you look at the research, we know that on average, every single human being has around 16,000 unspoken thoughts every single day. You know, there's nothing wrong with a thought in of itself. But what starts to happen is we become hooked or emotionally rigid, hooked is the, the language that I use in my book, where we start giving these thoughts, emotions, stories more space in our lives than they should have. So an example might be, you say to yourself, uh, you know, I'm worried that I'm not going to get that job, so I'm just not going to put in my resume. Or um, I am concerned that this business that I want to start is not going to be successful, so I'm just not even going to give it a go. Now, what you start doing there is you're starting to treat these thoughts, emotions, stories as fact rather than data. So an example might be, you know, last week I was uh, giving a presentation to a group of 5,000 individuals and it happened that that particular day was my birthday. And I remember leaving the house and saying to my son that I was going away for the day and my son saying to me, you know, this is your second birthday that you've been away. And so I then start having this thought, which is I'm a bad mom. And I start having this emotion, which is I feel guilty. Now, that's actually a really healthy thought and emotion. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, Charles Darwin described these ideas that these emotions are core to us as human beings, helping us to better understand ourselves, helping us to better understand what's important and to shape our lives accordingly. So there's nothing wrong with that thought or emotion. What becomes rigid is where you start treating the thought or emotion as fact. I had the thought that I'm a bad mom, therefore I am a bad mom. You start beating yourself up. You start, um, you know, treating yourself badly. You start lacking compassion in yourself. So really the core idea behind emotional rigidity is that to use this wonderful Viktor Frankl language, uh, he speaks about this idea that between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we hooked and emotionally rigid, there is no space between stimulus and response. I had the thought that I'm a bad mom, therefore I am a bad mom. I'm being undermined in this meeting, so I'm going to shut down. My partner's starting in on the finances, so I'm going to leave the room. What we're not bringing into the world at that point is other parts of ourselves, our values, who we want to be, uh, what is important to us. You know, we, we allowing our thoughts and emotions to call the shots. So you mentioned that you're a mother, and I wonder, having uh, been exposed to this body of, of knowledge and having had your work center around this research, uh, what impact has it had on the kind of parent you're being, and what would you tell parents who are listening? Well, it's had a huge impact on the kind of parent that I am. You know, none of us is a perfect parent, and I think that the first thing that my work teaches me is that compassion is really important. Self-compassion is really important. Uh, the recognition that all of us are doing the best we can with who we are, with what we've got and with the resources that we've been given in life. And so, you know, often when I'm up upset or feeling like I've got a lot on and I'm struggling through it, uh, and especially when that comes to parenting, I think being able to extend compassion to ourselves is really important and also being able to extend compassion to our children is really important. There's a myth that compassion is about being weak or lazy or letting yourself or others off the hook. But actually, uh, when we are compassionate, we create a safe space in which we can experiment and fail, in which we can try and we may not succeed, but it allows, it gives the permission to try. And this applies, of course, not just to parenting, but it also applies to the workplace. We often move into the workplace with such a strong sense of expectation of others, this, this tightness um, and this um, focus on task. And often what we forget is that we and others are doing the best we can and that if we can let go of the tightness and be compassionate. Um, it doesn't mean we're letting go of expectation, but that's a very powerful place for all of us. So it's impacted on my parenting in that way. Um, 
Another very practical way that this research has impacted on my parenting is that we do grow up in a society that tells us that positive emotions are all that count. And or, or not all that count, but but the most important. And that often what we do inadvertently is when our children come home and they're upset about something or no one would play with me today or they're worried, often with very good intentions as parents, we try to make things okay. So don't worry, I'll play with you. I'll phone the mean girl's parents and I'll organize a play date. And what we are inadvertently signaling to our children is that some emotions are good In other words, happiness is good, and some emotions are bad. We need to get rid of those difficult emotions. Um, And really what the research shows is that what that teaches our children is that emotions are good or bad, some emotions are to be feared, and it doesn't actually allow our children to develop the skills that are necessary in dealing with the world as it is, in which pain and heartache are built into our contract with the world. And so one thing that I'm just careful of in terms of my own parenting is when my child is upset about something is showing up to that upset. There's this beautiful phrase in South Africa, sawubona. And sawubona literally translated means I see you. And by seeing you, I bring you into being. And what I really try to do with my children imperfectly, but I try to do is when they're feeling upset or sad about something is not to push that away or to jolly it along and say, you know, everything's fine, but to really try to kind of show up to how it is that they're feeling in that moment. So earlier you mentioned uh, this capacity that we all have to pause between stimulus and response, which I've heard from uh, many other people. And I think that every one of us understands that logically Yet, I think in practice, it becomes harder, especially when somebody does something that makes us mad or something that upsets us. Uh, What what in your research have you found is the key to develop that capacity to pause between stimulus and response? Well, the first thing is a lot of times people will say, oh, it's very difficult to pause because this thing has caught me off guard. Uh, But actually, when you dig a little bit deeper, what comes out is that a lot of the times that we struggle to pause between stimulus and response are part of our patterned ways of being in the world. So we might find that there is a particular individual at work who always evokes a particular reaction in us. Or there might be a situation where um, it's specifically where our competence is being questioned that leads us to a particular level of defensiveness. Um, Or we may be very patterned and autopilot and coming home from work and bringing our cell phone to the table. And again, there's no space between stimulus and response because, you know, we're just doing things in a way that is autopilot as as opposed to a way that reflects our values. So I think this idea that, you know, that our emotions catch us off guard is is actually, yes, true on the face of it, but often if we think a little bit deeper about the things that trip us up time and time and time again, it is patterned and therefore it is predictable. Um, But there are a couple of other things that I think are critical in terms of being able to create space between stimulus and response. Um, The first is to do away with the idea that There are good emotions and bad emotions that I'm allowed to be happy and I'm allowed to just get on with it, but I'm not allowed to be anxious and I'm not allowed to be sad and I'm not allowed to be angry um, and I'm not allowed to be stressed. Um, Because when you treat some emotions as good and some emotions as bad, what this means is that you are cutting yourself off from a core warning signal that we have as human beings. You know, if I'm connected with my sadness, what I will start recognizing is that my sadness is increasing in relation to a particular situation. And so I'm kind of tracking my sadness and it's not taking me by surprise because I'm more authentically connected with the reality of my human experience. So I think really kind of doing away with this idea that they're good emotions and bad emotions it is a fundamental building block to being able to create pause between stimulus and response. And another just very quick strategy 
is that often people will say things like, you know, I am sad. Uh, I am being undermined in this meeting, so I'm going to shut down. I am stressed. And when you say I am, what it makes it sound is as if you are the emotion. You know, I am sad. All of me, 100% of me is sad. And you can see that in this context, then there's no space between you and the emotion because you've made all of you the emotion. So a very practical way that uh, I teach my clients and I use in organizations is just name the thought emotion feeling for what it is. It's a thought and it's an emotion or it's a feeling. It's not a directive to action. You know, who's in charge here, the thinker or the thought? So instead of saying, I am sad, I'm noticing the feeling that I'm sad. Instead of, I am stressed, I'm noticing the feeling that I'm stressed. It's so subtle, but what you're doing by prefixing, I am noticing the feeling, I'm noticing the thought, you're naming them for what they are, is you creating critical space between you and that emotional experience. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Uh, so 
Can I ask you one other question around patterned responses? Uh, and I'll give you an example from my own life because I really wonder how to change a patterned response. So I have a patterned response, and I, I've noticed this throughout my life. If I enter a stressful situation, whether that be something related to my finances, I, I find out some money's not going to come in, that's not going to come in, whether that be related to a relationship where somebody uh, breaks up with me or, or something else, I have had this tendency to say, okay, I'm going to go smoke a cigarette. Uh, and I'm an avid surfer, an avid snowboarder. I, I lead a fairly healthy lifestyle, yet I've seen that pattern response over and over throughout my life. I wonder, how do you break something like that? So it sounds like what you've done is you've you've kind of developed a – so do you actually go and smoke the cigarette? Well, it, 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 what's funny is that you would never find me smoking a cigarette in any other situation. I lead a very healthy lifestyle. I go to CrossFit. But when that happens or I'm, I'm stressed, then I will go and buy like a cigar or something that, that – you know, I, I think what I'm trying to do is numb whatever it is that I'm feeling. So, yeah, I mean I think that there, there are two aspects to this. The, the first is – that often when we go through difficult experiences, we can, and we see this across human beings, we can start engaging in short-term emotional avoidance strategies. So um, alcohol is one of them. Um, excessive sleep is another. Uh, drinking, smoking, these are examples. And these are examples of uh, emotion regulation strategies that are less effective and less healthy. Now, of course, the opposite side, people can use emotion regulation strategies that are more effective and more healthy. So going for a run, um, listening to music, uh, connecting with others for social support, these are also just short-term emotion regulation strategies, but they're more healthy emotion regulation strategies. So I think, you know, there are two helpful ways to think about this. The, the first is that, you know, what you're doing here is you are engaging in a as you recognize, short-term, unhealthy emotion regulation strategy. And what pure kind of science of habit change would say to you is that the way to break that habit, because it's become a habit that's evoked by a particular emotional response, is to switch, is to consciously switch it out. So, you know, you know that the next time you're in this kind of stressful situation, that you may automatically want to do the cigarette. And what the research on habit change tells us is that a lot of times when people are trying to change habits, what they do is they think about positive visualization. So they might say, you know, I'm trying to get fit and healthy. I'm going to imagine myself crossing the finishing line. Um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to be healthy. I'm going to imagine myself all thin and and, you know, toned and buffed. And so a lot of the science of habit change tells us that while people often do these imaginings of things going right, one of the most effective ways to change habits is thinking about the obstacles. So the obstacle is you might be trying to be fit and healthy, but when you are stressed, you automatically draw on this particular thing, which is the cigarette. And that imagining obstacles and actually understanding obstacles and making conscious choices about how you might replace that cigarette with something else in a very systematic, thought out and intentional way is, is often the way to start unlearning that habit. So, you know, for instance, we know this when people have got eating disorders. Uh, you know, a, a typical example of this is in uh, cases of bulimia. When someone is tempted to, to binge and purge, for instance, we know from the psychological research, actually what we want to do is in that trigger, they need to find an alternative action. So it might be that they go for a walk. It might be that they take a bath, but they are specifically choosing something that they use to replace the one with the other. Um, the longer term to this is, is less about the cigarette. You know, the longer term to this is also about being able to recognize that when you're feeling stressed, like what is it that's actually going on for you? Um, when you're feeling sad, what is it that's going on for you? What are some of the values that the loss of the relationship might be um, connecting with or taking you away from that's important to you? And so really kind of coming face-to-face -face with those things is what helps these situations in the longer term. So we've got the short-term emotion regulation strategy, uh -huh. but then we've got the longer-term stuff that's the real work around any aspect of human change. Yeah. 
So speaking of, of any aspect of human change, this quote in particular uh, I think is very, very uh, resonant with me right now, particularly because I just wrote uh, a piece where I'm going to go and actually add this quote to it. I just realized I needed to. You say one of the greatest paradoxes of human experience is that we can't change ourselves or our circumstances until we accept what exists right now. This means giving permission for the world to be as it is because it's only when we stop trying to control the universe that we make peace with it. And yet that flies in the face of all of our cultural narratives around striving and hustling and grinding and 60-hour uh, work weeks. How do you balance that paradox with actually doing the things that are necessary to accomplish your goals? So acceptance is not passive resignation. It's not acceptance is not passive resignation. It's not saying, oh my goodness, this is just the world as it is. There's nothing I can do. Acceptance is the recognition that this is the world as it is. And I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, when my father died, a huge part of me did not want to accept it. And so when you start entering into a space of lack of acceptance, what you do is you struggle with your emotion. You struggle with the grief. Why am I feeling so sad? Like I shouldn't be grieving. People are telling me that everything's going to be okay. Um, there's, there's so much of the way we live in the world that really banishes these difficult emotions and difficult experiences. And so what we land up being is we land up being human beings feeling that we can fix everything. You know, we don't like the walls in our house. We can paint them. We don't like our car. We can buy a new car. We don't like our cell phone. We can buy a new cell phone. And we start thinking that when we have difficult thoughts, emotions, we can just fix them, you know, banish them, do away with them, replace them with positive and everything will be okay. But actually, paradoxically, what we know from the psychological research is that acceptance of our most difficult emotions is the cornerstone to resilience, to thriving, and to real change. So, you know, an example of this is someone who's seeking a relationship. Um, there's, there's sometimes this hustling that can go on. You used that word earlier. Um, that That is kind of doing a lot of activity in the world. Um, but there's a real power in actually showing up to the loneliness of the experience, like showing up to how alone one might feel and and why that loneliness is difficult. And so it's not about passive resignation. It's about kind of being able to name your experience, show up to it, understand that that loneliness is a signal that intimacy and belonging are really important, that they're values that are powerful beneath those. And when we are able to show up to the reality of our experience and we label that experience accurately and we understand the values that the experience point to, that is what helps us to move forward. And I'll give you just a very simple example of what this can look like. You know, I often in my work will uh, hear People say things like, you know, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. And so what they're doing is they're constantly pushing aside those emotional signals. And five years later, the person's still saying, I'm unhappy in my job, but at least I've got a job. Um, but now five years have passed and they have completely lost that time that they could have been shaping themselves more effectively, shaping their careers and their skills and so on. And so the power of acceptance is really the power of being able to show up to the reality of my experience. I am in a job in which I feel stuck. I'm in a job in which there's limited growth and limited opportunity. This is my reality. When we are able to accept, when we're able to say, what is the fear that's underneath that? Or what is the emotion that's in that experience. And when we're able to start saying, what are the values that are not being served in my current job? It might be values of growth or security or collaboration, for instance. We start getting a, a bigger picture about how we need to move forward in order to make the change. So really, this idea of acceptance is not passive resignation. It's about showing up courageously 
to a job, an experience, a relationship, or a situation and say, this is what this thing is. And when you can get your arms around what the thing is, you can start moving forward productively. So I had an experience recently that I think was really indicative of exactly what you're talking about. I I had a new book come out in August, and I was really stressed about the fact that it wasn't selling as many copies as I wanted it to. Uh, It was going slower. And I remember this moment, Just this was a few days ago, where I thought to myself, okay, that's it. I'm going to surrender. Uh, I've got to make my peace with the fact that this isn't going to become a New York Times bestseller, that we're not going to sell 10,000 copies in a week, and I should be okay with it. And I saw that we had moved 40 to 50 copies uh, over the course of the previous week. And my in that moment of surrender, suddenly I had this moment of clarity where I said, okay, what can we do instead of trying to reach this exorbitant goal of, of tens of thousands of copies, what else could we be doing to continue that 40 to 50 copies a week? And uh, then, I, then I found out from my editor that we'd crossed the 1,000 copy threshold. And I realized that if I had been so rigid about that expectation of, of bestseller 10,000 copies, I would have completely overlooked uh, how, how much I had to appreciate getting to that 1,000 copy threshold, which apparently most books don't even hit that. I think that's a really, really powerful example. And what it also speaks to is that when you are stressed in that way, you know, we spoke earlier about being hooked, being driven by your thoughts, emotions, and stories, so there's no space. Uh, You know, what you can start seeing in that experience is, I'm stressed, this is terrible, this is awful, this is a failure, there's this, you know, and so that can drive this whole narrative. Um, Whereas if you are able to say, I'm really disappointed because I've put so much effort into this thing and it hasn't unfolded in the way that I'd hoped. And you can name it and you can own up to it and you can start saying, now what is the value that is beneath this disappointment? The value might be that I'm not getting message out to particular people or the value might be that I, you know, I'm wanting to build my platform in very particular ways and I'm kind of struggling to do that. And you start actually connecting in with the values that underlie this thing that you might be calling stress. What that allows you to then do is have clarity and take out that piece of paper and say, okay, what can I do in this situation? And what you're starting to do is you're starting to move yourself from a struggle that lies in the place of confusion and emotion into a struggle that is directed by values. Mm, wow. And, and a clarity that's directed by values. Yeah. So uh, you talked a bit, uh, I think this is really a fitting segue to uh, what I want to talk about next. Uh, you mentioned this idea that self-acceptance usually takes uh, a big hit when we start making comparisons and you say looking to someone whose accomplishments are just a notch or two above you, your own might be inspiring, but judging yourself against a true superstar or a once in a lifetime genius can be devastating. That's in part because we tend to focus on the end result rather than what it takes to get there. And what's amazing is that we live in a world where this happens 24 hours a day. Uh, because if you log into Facebook and look through your newsfeed, there's always somebody who's accomplished something far more impressive or amazing than you have. And so I wonder, what does your research show about the role that social media is playing in amplifying this sense of comparison that we have? And what are the things that we can do to not get caught up in this sense of comparison, but also look to people who are role models who do inspire us? So I'll give you, I'll finish this up with one other example. I had a listener once who emailed me and told me, I can't keep listening to your show because these stories are with amazing people and it's actually making me feel worse about myself. And I actually understood why he said that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating before we even get to social media. um, What we know is that one of the most toxic ways we can be in the world is when we constantly compare ourselves to others. So, so um, social comparison has an enormous level of toxicity to us as human beings psychologically, whether that's, you know, through media, whether it's through looking at, uh, you know, people in magazines and so on. Um, so we as human beings are firstly, when we compare, there's this toxic experience, but also we land up 
um, being subjected to what in psychological science is called social contagion. And social contagion is really the idea that not only are we comparing ourselves to others, but we are also trying to acquire and behave like others without even realizing that we are trying to do it. So I'll give you an example. Um, imagine you are trying to lose weight and you go on an airplane and your seat partner buys candy. What the research shows is that you are 70% more likely to buy candy as well. You don't even need to know the seat partner, um, but you're more likely to buy candy. If someone in your social network gets divorced or puts on weight, you are more likely to get divorced or put on weight. And while this might sound bizarre, we've all had that experience. You know, you go out to dinner, one person orders dessert. We all order dessert without even realizing, you know, that we're doing it. Uh, if one person brings a cell phone into a meeting, we all start taking out our cell phone. So what starts to happen is you've got this uh, social comparison that human beings often engage in. And then you've got this social contagion, which is the picking up on the emotions and the behaviors of others in a way that can often take us away from our values, away from what's important. Now let's bring social media into, into the mix. Yeah. Uh, imagine you've got someone who you consider to be a complete loser in fifth grade, and that person is now driving around in a Ferrari. Uh, we, with social media, are now, now no longer comparing ourselves to this one individual. We're comparing ourselves to every single person who, you know, has some level of success. And so it becomes amplified. Um, how do we protect ourselves against this? There are a couple of things that we know to be important. The first is having a sense of who we are, our values, what we stand for, what is important, front of mind. We know, for instance, that when people have grown up in situations where, say, they're told, oh, you know, you're never going to make it to college. People like us don't make it to college. That person tries and tries and tries and finally makes it to college. Um, when they experience their first stress, for instance, they take a test and they fail, they're much more likely to drop out. But if those people have spent 10 minutes thinking about, what are my values here? Who am I trying to be? Why am I studying this particular thing at college? It protects them. So the first thing is that values are often seen as being abstract, wishy-washy ideas, but we know that they are powerful. Knowing who you are, what you stand for, what's important, can protect you from so many of the ill effects of social comparison and of social contagion. You know, who am I trying to be in this situation? Yes, everyone else is stressed in the workplace, but how do I want to bring myself to the meeting or to my client? Um, yes, other people are selling more copies of books than I am, um, but what is the value that I have to offer? What is my unique message here? And how can I work to bring my unique message to the world, regardless of what other people are doing. And again, to your point earlier, that's not saying that you may not say, well, you know, what is this individual doing strategically that might be helpful? Um, I think that's, you know, that that can be incredibly, it's a, it's a resource, it can be incredibly helpful to learn from others. Um, but what starts to happen is when you start to engage with ideas of how it's not about the work, it's not about what I've got to do, it's not about these activities, but actually it's a reflection of me, how I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not, you know, we, we take these things that are um, functions very often of the environment and we start making them very personal and feeling really bad about ourselves. And that's when social comparison can become the most toxic. Mm, wow. So, so you mentioned values, and and this is one both line that in the book really, really struck me because uh, it felt like so much of my life has been dictated by a very similar message. You said identifying what you value and acting on it is not always easy. We're constantly bombarded with messages from culture, advertisers, our upbringing, our religious training, and our families, friends, and peers about what is important and what makes us worthy. And 
I think that particularly in immigrant cultures, we get very, very clear messages on what makes us worthy and what's important. And I wonder how you get back to a place of acting on your own values when your social programming is so deeply embedded in who you are. Yeah, and I think this is a very common experience for people. You know, this is in in the psychological research on values. We call this pliance. Pliance is the idea that our parents might tell us what is important. And so we grow up with this idea that, okay, that's the thing that's important. Uh, And then we start often experiencing a sense of dissonance. You know, you feel like you're not living your own life or you feel like, you would do something else, you would embark on a different career um, if it weren't for that programming that told you that if you engage in that career that you somehow a failure. And so we can often have these, um, these values that can feel like our own simply because they're so comfortable and yet they are really fundamentally reflections of what we've been told to believe. And so I think this is where, um, firstly, again, moving into discomfort is so important. If you just shun those so-called difficult emotions and you say, well, I'm experiencing dissonance, but I'm just going to ignore it and I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing, you know, gritting through with this particular thing I've been told represents value in my career or in my life, um, then you are no longer being agile. You're not being adaptive. You simply are using rule-based thinking that developed from when you were a little child. Um, So I think this is where starting to inquire, starting to say, you know, gee, I feel dissonance. I feel discomfort. I feel sadness. And, And not pushing it aside, but rather trying to hold it, name it, label it, understand it can start to help you to surface what are your values? What is something that you own rather than what has been told to you? So, you know, I used that example earlier of someone saying, you know, I'm in a job, but at least I've got a job, so I'm just going to push aside these difficult emotions. Imagine the enormous power of someone saying, I'm in this job, This is the job that I've been told by my parents, by society, is the right thing for me to be doing. But what I'm feeling here is sadness, and that sadness represents a loss of growth or a loss of opportunity or a lack of creativity or a lack of communion and community or whatever it is that that sadness signals to the person. And so what you recognize is that beneath that most difficult emotion is a signpost of something that you care about. That signpost is often a signpost to your values, to your true values. And so what we start getting here is this really powerful way of using, of mining our most difficult emotions in a way that helps us to understand who we are as people, what's important to us, and to make shifts accordingly. And to also recognize that, you know, a value that you might have had when you were 20 years old may no longer be your values. You know, your values evolve and change. And there's such power in being able to embrace uh, the freedom that comes with the recognition that as a human being, Everything else in the world changes. So why wouldn't we as people change? Why wouldn't our values change? Of course they can change. Of course they can evolve. Mm, Wow. So from everything that you and I have talked about, my sense is that this uh, ability to uh, have emotional agility is not a tactic, but it's a practice and something that you have to keep working at on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I think that there are both practice aspects of emotional agility. The practice aspects are about trying to do away with uh, the idea that there's a good or bad emotion. The practice aspects are about being able to recognize that there's enormous power in the space of discomfort. 
the practice aspects are about being able to create space between you and what you do so that your values can come to the fore. And then there are also very tactical aspects to it. So in the book, for instance, I talk about making values-aligned tweaks or values-aligned changes to your life. So an example might be, um, you know, the example that I gave earlier, which is you might have a habit that you engage in, which is, you know, your unhealthy, unwanted cigar every time you upset, as an example, or not every time, but, you know, when you draw to that. And there's a science of habit change that shows that tactically you can start making very different habits. So I'll give you an example. You know, imagine you're trying to make a values-aligned habit change to your health. Um, And imagine you already eat breakfast every morning and your values-aligned habit change is that you're trying to eat more fruit as well. A tactical aspect is something that we call piggybacking. And piggybacking is where you take a habit that already exists in your day-to-day life. You already eat your cereal. And you now add this new values-aligned habit to the thing that already exists. So you're now adding your fruit to your cereal. Now, that's a very small example. But that's tactical in that we've all got many, many things that we do routinely every day. But we can start making very small shifts to those habits to elevate our values uh, into our lives so that we're starting to do more of what is meaningful to us. And that's very practical. Wow. Wow. Well, this has been truly, truly amazing. Uh, I think to me, this is one of those conversations that I, and I'm guessing other people will have to go back and play at least 15 times to get everything that you've packed into it. Uh, So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think what makes someone unmistakable is an individual who knows who they are and what they stand for and are able to uh, try every day to make moves that are towards moves moves towards those values. I think, you know, that is the hallmark of authenticity. It's the hallmark of self-ownership. It's the hallmark of autonomy and it's the hallmark of growth. And, you know, for me, that, if you said to me, like, what is success? Success is not about living someone else's life or matching up to someone else. It's about an, an understanding at a core level of who you are and who you want to be in the world. And I don't think there's anything more powerful or anything more creative than being self-authoring in that way. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really fitting end to our conversation. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything that you're up to? So thank you. Thank you so much. So three uh, aspects that I think might be helpful to people. The first is my TED Talk, The Gift and Power of Emotional Courage. Uh, The second is that I've got an online quiz that about 100,000 people have taken now, and it's a free, very quick quiz that focuses on emotional agility, and you get a report that comes with that, and that people can find on my website, uh, susandavid.com forward slash learn, L-E-A-R-N, with a South African accent, Mm. and the third is the book Emotional Agility. Fantastic. And we'll include all of those things in the show notes for everybody. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.